Glams, if you love listening to this show as much as we love doing it, we would so appreciate if you would go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. We love reading them. It warms our hearts and it helps us too. If you follow us on social media and you like it, if you love listening to our news episodes or our guest episodes, or you've even been a tester for Gloss Angeles Confidential, all of those things would make a great review. And we would love, love, love to hear from you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, Kirby. Hi, Sarah. Welcome, Welcome to, to Los Angeles. Welcome, Glamgelinos. We hope you stay a while. I am very excited for this episode, y'all. This is a long time coming, truly. Sarah and I have both seen this woman throughout her career. We first met her at a little brand called Urban Decay. And she just has done some really amazing things. And she has been so transparent about her journey through this crazy beauty industry. If you are thinking about starting a brand, if you want to know about product development, if you just want all of the juicy tea, Amy is going to give it to you. This is Amy Sunsunegi. Amy has almost two decades of experience under her belt, dedicated her career to developing iconic industry disrupting products such as the Naked Palette, Moondust Eyeshadows, which are having a moment, <laughs> the 24-7 Glide-On Eye Pencils at Urban Decay. Following UD, she then went on to found her own skincare brand, Wildcat, which Sarah and I both loved and used, and I still have product that I can't wait to get to, which launched a national retailer such as Target and Ulta. But after four years, last year, Amy decided to close the brand to much surprise from the brand's fans. So Amy is still in the industry. She is developing products for other brands. And we thought, girl, come on. You've got some stories to tell. We want to hear them all now. Amy, welcome to the show. Yes, I do. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. I'm so excited to be here. And uh, yeah, it's been a while that that I've known you guys. And quick math, I actually realize I've been in the industry 25 years, which is really crazy. But yeah, Woo! I know. 25. I know. I know. So excited to be here. I feel like every time I see Amy, she has a bright lip on. So that's how I know her. She's got light hair, these beautiful eyes, and a bright lip. Oh, and you'll have to tell us. You know what? It is actually Urban Decay, but it's new Urban Decay because I wanted to support the brand. And I was looking for a new pink lip, and I was in Sephora, and I bought it. So it's their new Vice lipstick. Oh, my gosh. That's so sweet that you still support. I try. I try. Okay. Well, we have to ask you what else is on your face. So in addition to this gorgeous pink lip, what? do you have on your face right now? Skincare too. Well, it is all still Wildcat skincare. Obviously get into the formulations, but you know, I love the products. Obviously love the brand, but I really love the formulas and they worked perfectly for my skin. So I still have my bag full of stuff downstairs in the archive. So I do use the whole house still uses Wildcat. So I don't know what I'm going to do when I run out, but hopefully it'll be a couple of years. 
I like to obviously keep my skincare pretty simple. So I cleanse in the morning. I work out really early in the morning. So I cleanse in the morning. I use the ginger tonic, saffron, eye gel, mushroom musk, and that's it for skincare. Right now I'm using the color corrector by Hero. I really like this product. I had a laser done a couple weeks ago, so it helps control the redness. I'm loving this, this YSL bare tint skin. I really am into this product. Because you get older, you have to wear a little less on your face. And this, I like that you can see your skin through it, but it evens everything and a little goes a long way. I feel like I see so many people talk about that product and I have still not tried it. I need it. Same. Really thin, which I like. And so when I put it on, I feel like, oh my God, I look better, but I still can see my skin, which I really like. I mix high, low. I kind of always had, obviously, Urban Decay was where I'm mostly Urban Decay and Tustin Trying, which I am now too. But I buy, I have brow products from CVS that I'm loving right now. I'm loving this Arches and Halos. Super simple, straightforward product, but it really, really works. And again, have to cover some of my gray eyebrows. So this is perfect. I love it. Is it an eyebrow gel? I use the pencil first to fill in. I have my brows microbladed, but I like to like fill in the tips and kind of the arches where it tends to wear off. And then this is a gel. It's more of a a tint. And then I set my brows with the refi stuff. So that's my low brow thing. Yeah. Love it. I think good, heavy brow, like a little bit darker brows make you look younger. Ooh. Amy, what about your hair? Oh gosh, my hair. So it's obviously a bit processed, but I love to be blonde. (laughs) If I could be like the color of paper, I would be the color of paper. I use Olaplex to condition, to tone, to shampoo. I actually, for styling product, I use a mix. I love the Kristen S stuff. I actually think for the price, accessibility, right? I love to just be able to run in and grab it at Ulta or Target when I'm doing errands. And I think their products are really fun to play with, right? Like Again, they're not over dramatic, not overdeveloped, but they really do a good job. And I think I like to change it out a lot. So I actually use their spray in pink a lot. I use the Batiste dry shampoo. And then I have this product, this Patrick's product. Have you guys tried this? This is actually pretty cool. It's a paste. I love the package too. Oh, cool, huh? Yeah. And then it's like, obviously it's a putty and you warm it up in your hands and then it kind of gives you the PC, keeps keeps all my flyaways down. I've been wanting to buy this for Patrick because it's called Patrick. There you go. Perfect. I know maybe Valentine's Day. That's the gift. Amy, what do you have on your cheeks? Because your cheeks look so glowy and just like rosy. I have an old UD product that I'm obsessed with. (gasps) One of the things we'll talk about is in like my last little tip thing is like sometimes you have to wait for the market to catch up. And this is one of those products. It was too early. I love it. It's this putty blush that we did. I think it was an Ulta exclusive, if I remember correctly, kind of as I was leaving. It is so awesome. It's so awesome. So so no longer available. No, I don't think so. No, no. Oh, they should bring it back. It would be smart. I know. They really should. I know. All the jelly, all the putty that's happening right now. You're so right. Exactly. So yeah, that's kind of mascara. I'm testing a formula that I'm obsessed with. So yeah, I kind of just mix and match whatever I got in my bag. Amy, I'm actually curious, you know, as somebody who develops products, are you able to go in a store and try something like on your hand or on like the bottom of your face and be like, bad formula, not good? Do you truly go through the wear process and like actually give it a go? Or can you tell right off the bat if something's not going to be great? I think it depends on what the product is, right? Okay. Because so much of it is based on preference. 
right? So if I take foundation, for instance, this was, I was in Sephora and I was with a girlfriend and she wanted foundation and she was looking at some other things. And I was like, oh, that's too thick for me. I know I'm not, I don't want that much coverage. I don't want this. Not to say that it's a bad formula. It's just not what I was personally looking for. But there are definitely products where you get them home and you try them or, you know, if you buy them online, I'm just like, ooh, this one's not going to work. But again, skin type, skin preference, skin tone, all that sort of stuff. I think it just depends. There's really, really, really good mass products. You guys know this. And there's really crap luxury products, right? So it also depends on what you're wearing on top, you know, how you layer and all those sorts of things. It was one of the things that was really important at Wildcat is because when we were developing the products, it was pre-pandemic, we were all wearing a ton of makeup. Right. So it was really important for me for those products to not interfere with any level of makeup. So no pilling, no, none of those sorts of things, which can happen with silicones and all that. But I think it's a preference thing. I have a almost 17 year old daughter. So it's really fun to see what she's doing. And I just kind of spy on what she's doing. But there's things that those girls absolutely love. And I'm like, okay, I don't get it, but that's fine. More power to you. I think there's the social media influence, the TikTok influence, obviously, all of that sort of stuff. Oh my God. What is one of the things? <laughs> I need to know. Not to shame anyone. Yeah. Yeah, No. Right. No, no, no. It's not. Again, it's I don't contour, right? I'm not a contour person. And they're all contouring now. I've never, Mm. besides putting blush on my face, it's just when I just don't have the time or energy, nor do I, I maybe just don't care that much. I don't know. They are contouring like crazy. So they're buying contouring products and the glow products and the this and the that and all of those sorts of things. And I'm like, oh, too many steps for me. She's super into her brows, but she's got amazing brows. So she doesn't even have to fill in. She just, you know, puts them up and, and goes. So not fair. But Good a lot her. of the glow, bronzing, contouring sort of things that she's doing. Yeah. But she would never wear a bright lipstick. No way. She thinks I'm absolutely bananas. Yeah. Very different. Just gloss. You know, they love the road beauty and the summer Fridays, and which are great. I mean, we all steal one another's, but that's, it's just a very different look. She's that kind of more simple simple, clean girl look. Wow. Okay. So like we said, you began your career in product development at Urban Decay. You did iconic things like developing the Naked Palette. Who were your biggest competitors back then at Urban Decay? And have you noticed that Urban Decay's competitors have changed since the evolution of social media and influencers? And like, how did the brand change with that kind of integration? Yeah. I mean, when I started, it was 1999, right? So I faxed my resume in for reference. Let's just like fax my resume, <laughs> which was a very normal thing to do. You didn't really email then, right? The internet kind of existed. I actually started in purchasing for a year. And then I went over to work for Wendy and did that for another you know, 19 years. I think the speed of change that has happened in 25 years, and obviously the speed of change that's happened in five years is like exponential, right? And so when I started, or even when the brand started in 95 versus when I left, or even when the Naked Palette launched, totally, totally different space. I think what was interesting about Urban is like any success, right place, right time, right product, right team, right? There is luck and there is strategy, and it's that perfect storm for things to happen. Back in, you know, 95, 2000, it was, as Wendy would say, it was a sea of pink and beige, right? There was not a lot of brands that were shaking things up because it was very expensive to launch a brand. There was no social media. There was no internet. So it was a really traditional way and it was department store shopping. And so to enter into that market was, it was tough. It was really, really tough. And women were exposed to what they were exposed to on TV commercials, effectively. 
But then obviously, as we had success, and then there was, you know, other brands like, you know, Too Faced that came along around the same time. And there was even brands like Rocket Girl and all these other brands that were trying to the moment of indie brands didn't really exist in the way that it did at that time prior to that. So all these indie brands came came about. And then the big brands were really fascinated with the indie brands because speed to market, innovation, willingness to take risk. We could go down the rabbit hole of you know how you cost things and how you look at things. We just operated in a very different way, whether that was strategy or whether that was a little bit of ignorance is bliss. I don't know. It's probably both. And then, you know, obviously with the internet coming about and with other brands seeing the success that we had and, you know, some of the other indie brands had and, and what we could do in the space and how the consumer was really, really interested to see with the products that we were launching, then more competition came about. Obviously with social media and TikTok, that completely changed. Okay. So the naked palette, like the palette. Yeah. Okay. I have a feeling there's going to be some type of naked palette resurgence. Like people are going to be like, no, give us back the OG. Yeah. It died. There was a funeral for it. Like I remember <laughs> Candy Johnson and Nicole Richie were like laying it to rest. Yeah, we, we did that. Yeah. <laughs> and we were all perplexed because we're like, how are you going to do this? This is insane. Like this is the palette that people buy. Do you remember why was it laid to rest? Was it like, there was so much competition and there were so many nude palettes that it was just like, it didn't make sense to continue on with it. Like were sales going down? Do you remember anything about that time? I don't necessarily remember that sales were going down, but I think if you think about it from a business standpoint, right? One, in a retailer, there's only so much real estate, right? You only have a certain amount of shelf space. And so your shelf space has to be productive. Your products have to be productive. Not to say that the naked one wasn't, but if you look back at the shades now, they're pretty cool, right? For what we're all wearing now. And they're, they've got a lot of gray and um, they were so of the moment and of the time. But when we looked at them, we're like, okay, this needs a refresh. And then how do you take a different perspective on it? I love Reloaded. Reloaded is probably my naked, favorite naked baby and heat second to that. Yeah, heat's great. Because of those warm bronzy and they're really more flattering shades. I think at the time, that's what we were all wearing was, you know, the naked one shades. So there was a little bit, obviously, of a business strategy. It's like, okay, naked one is doing X in sales. If we launch another one, can we do bigger and better? Yes, right? Probably yes. And so that was part of the business side of it. But the other side of it is also like marketing. Like, you know, you always want to be one of the first five people to leave a party, right? And so it's like, you got to end it, kind of walk out at the peak. And so there was a little bit of a marketing strategy to that as well. And, you know, conversations with retailers, listening to what the consumers say, it's all of that sort of stuff goes in the mix of making a big decision like that. But then when we decided to do it, it was like, oh my God, we got to do this in a really cool way. That is so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It was wild. It was wild because we decided it pretty much internally at Urban, as I recall. And then we announced it to the world, i.e. the L'Oreal world, because at the time we were, you know, had been acquired to the L'Oreal world at this big thing in, in Paris. And they all <laughs> had a heart attack. They were like, these people have lost their minds. But then we obviously showed them what was coming and all those sorts of things. So yeah, yeah, it's a risk. But that was one of the things that I think at Urban, one of the main, you know, big reasons that we were so successful, we were willing to take risks, right? And everybody held hands and go, okay, we're doing this. Like we're going to do this and everyone's going to do a part and piece, but we were holding hands and we're going to take a risk. I just am curious, like, okay, like pre-L'Oreal, like, you know, 
right after you faxed your resume of that time. Like, do you have any like memories or, or stories of like a moment where like you guys took a risk as a small brand and it paid off and you were like, holy shit, this is so amazing. Yeah, I think naked was a little bit of a risk. I'll come back to that. But I think also Alice in Wonderland, that was kind of the big moment where people were buying products before it even hit the shelves, like Sephora was selling it out of the back. And I can't remember if it came pre-naked or in between. I, I time, you know, there's a lot of product in there. But that was a really big moment where we also realized like, oh God, have we kind of like made it, if you will. But I think naked, I remember Wendy coming in and saying, I think we should really think about doing a neutral palette and we should call it naked. And I was like, okay, name's perfect. And I'm like, oh, a neutral palette. Really? I mean, we'll be the first one to say that I was like, that's so boring, <laughs> you know? And her point of view was like, look, we need to think about this brand in the next evolution, right? We can't always be doing purple eyeshadow and, you know, green pencils and stuff like that. There is a different customer base and there is a way that we can do it. And my whole thing and her whole thing was, how do we make sure that this is so urban decay? We have a point of view on it that is different than other neutral palettes that existed in the marketplace, which there were some, but not a ton. And so to me, that actually felt like a pretty big risk to do something like that because it was like, how do we make sure that we're still keeping our core customer base and bringing them something interesting and innovative to the market? But I think the name, the packaging, the way the shades lined up, the fact that we put glitter in a neutral palette, the fact that there was like gray and a black, I think was, you know, our point of view to make it strangely less risky for us. It's always finding that balance. It's funny listening to you say this because I always think about Urban Decay, especially when I first got introduced to the brand as being this edgy, really pushing the envelope. Like you said, like purple eyeshadows with glitter and like turquoise eyeliner and things like that. But the brand also had its arguably biggest product, a neutrals palette, which is so insane to think about. It could have been anything, but it was this neutrals palette. And I wonder if it makes, wait, did you guys bring it back at some point, the original Naked, or did it officially die? I want to say now that you said that, that maybe they brought it back for like a super limited sort of anniversary moment. But I think it's it's not on the gondola now. I think one and even two and three maybe even gone. But I want to say they they did a like couple thousand pieces. Or I can't remember. I feel like the the cool tones are back. Like I always like gravitate towards the, you know, the warms and stuff. Like That's why I loved like Heat and I love Naked 3 because of like the rose golds and stuff. But like the cool tones are so back right now. This like 90s grunge, indie sleaze. I feel like maybe a revive. Like, where are we going to see the Naked palette again? I-, I don't know. I haven't <laughs> been there in five years. I have no idea what they're doing over there. I'm so far of them. I know. You're like, I can't predict the future. But yeah, it would be interesting for them to do that for sure. For sure. Totally. I think there's a couple reasons that Naked, you know, was so successful. Obviously, even the most extreme makeup wearers need neutral eyeshadows, right? If you're doing a crazy smoky look or purple eye or whatever you're doing, you're using, you know, your base neutral shadows to set your whole look. I think the way the shades were curated huge, 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 huge part of it, right? I think the piano keys, like nothing had really been done in that, in that really beautiful flow before. And then I think 
we reached a consumer who wanted to be part of Urban Decay and she wanted to be that cool girl, but she was scared to wear even a red lip or a pink lip or a turquoise eyeshadow or what have you. But this allowed her to be part of, you know, I say cult, but like the big, the big piece of urban pie and like stepping into it, but being really safe. I think her pulling that naked palette out of her bag, first of all, just the name and saying, Oh my God, I have a naked palette. Right. It was at the time, which doesn't seem now, but it was pretty risque. Right. And so I think those are a couple of the reasons why it just, it just clicked and resonated. And then, then we put all the steam behind it. Ugh, such a good story. So amazing. Let's talk about Wildcat. After almost 20 years at Urban Decay, you left. I'm sure it was super scary to make this big decision to start your own brand. And you started it as a CBD brand, which I think we all remember that time too. It was like very exciting to have, you know, a brand with CBD in it. But again, scary and also really difficult. So what issues did you run into when you were working with CBD as an ingredient? And then ultimately, like what made you decide you wanted to pivot? So when I left Urban, I had zero, I've always had zero desire to start a brand or own my own brand for a couple of different reasons, right? I was going to ask, I was like, can you, can you tell the people actually? <laughs> Kirby knows this because we had smoothies one day and I was like, ah, I never had a calling to do it. I didn't want to do it. It wasn't in my like, oh, I want to start this brand. I have this huge vision. I think I can fill a white space. I didn't have that need, right? Like even for skincare, I was fine using whatever. I'm not, I didn't feel like I had this clear vision of, of what I could do in this space. Wildcat actually started as a cannabis brand, a pure play cannabis brand. So we were going to cannabis farms and we were looking at flour and we were doing all these sorts of things. And the, the way that that started, I had left Urban Decay, I'd been gone, you know, a month or so, or was in the transition. And someone came to me and said, would you be interested in doing that? I said, no way. One, I, I'm not your cannabis girl. And two, I don't really want to do this whole thing. And they're like, no, 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 we're going to set the structure up. We're fundraised. We'll do the whole thing. You just have to have the brand vision and help create the products, but we'll kind of build this thing around you. And I was like, all right, well, let's see. In a matter of like 30 days, we had concepted the brand, put it on a piece of paper, rendering sheets, and we had raised a lot of money. Maybe not 30, 60 days. You get the point. It was so fast that I don't think I ever stopped to really think about it. And then we were close to deal and we had an office and we had 10 employees and we were off and running. So initially it was cannabis only. And that's kind of why it's named Wildcat is that there was no brand in the cannabis space that spoke to a female consumer in a non-condescending way, or I call a pink ribbon brand, right? That like, oh, we're just going to throw some pink on it and then it's, it's made for women. And so we really went interesting. Like we were doing like big fatties and we were doing all these really interesting things to speak to a female consumer. And you have to remember the space was becoming open. It had just become legal in the state of California and there was all this interest to it, right? Very, very cool. I still look back at the deck and I'm like, this is a cool brand, right? No one's really done anything. The CBD skincare side of it was not an afterthought, but it was a secondary company brand. And the reason for it is you cannot advertise cannabis any way, shape, or form across state lines, i.e. nationally, but you can with a skincare brand. And they were named the same thing. It was Wildcat Cannabis, Wildcat Skincare, and the skincare had CBD so that the cannabis side gave the CBD skincare street cred. Like we're not just another skincare brand. We actually know what we're doing. We're playing the real space. And then the skincare brand was able to lift up and nationalize a California cannabis brand. 
It's a very interesting, smart strategy, but cannabis kind of started to get real wonky and real crazy. And most of our board and our investors were cannabis people. And they were actually the ones that are like, let's stop burning the money and the fuel, which we did in cannabis. And let's pivot and focus on solely on the CBD skincare side. Cause one, that's your specialty and two, easier to execute and in theory, easier to make money. And so we did that. So we had gone pretty far down the path in terms of cannabis. We started the brand in summer of 2019, like August of 2019. By the end of the year, we said, okay, no more cannabis, just fully focus on the CBD skincare. We had product already to go, launch party ready to go, the whole thing. And then the pandemic hit. So that Monday before the world shut down, we decided, okay, let's cancel the launch party. Let's still do launch the brand, but we better figure out our website because we were talking to retailers at the time and we became a full D2C brand and we launched on April 20th of 2020. So it was already like two huge headwinds coming at us that was pretty intense. And then we obviously had to kind of figure it out. What no one tells you or no one told us was you can do CBD online, but you cannot advertise it on Google and Facebook and Instagram. They'll shut it down if you say anything related to, at least at the time, it might have changed now, but five years ago. You couldn't say cannabis sativa, da, 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 da. You couldn't do any of that. So trying to market to a consumer. And we really wanted to talk about it because we put in good levels. We talked about it on the packaging. It said the milligrams that were used in everything. Well, then we had to Photoshop every single photo we put and used it online because you can't actually have 150 milligrams of CBD in an ad or in a photo. Can't even have it on your PDP page because Google will catch it and they will shut you down. Or they'll, they'll take your ads down. So you pay more for payment processors. You have to find different banks. We actually got kicked out of a bank. We were told to come get our money. I know we got kicked out of a bank. Oh, yeah. The, the stories at the DEA called three days before Christmas on one of our labs because the testing wasn't, was obviously contaminated with something else. The stories and the on and on and on and on and on. And I think one of the things that no one talks about is the formulating with CBD. Again, five years, it might have completely changed. but we wanted to buy from really good farms and good resources that had good pure product, right? And we did. I formulated everything first so that the formulas existed. And then we went back and added the CD. Thank God I did that. I don't know that I was actually that smart. I think I just did it because we had to then, you know, reformulate or re-execute. When you drop the CBD in, because it's an oil, it changes everything. We didn't use distillate. We used oil, which is in theory better, but it changes the whole thing. So like the cleanser, we initially had it in, it was kicking it out. It was crystallizing. It was turning yellow. All these crazy, crazy, crazy stories. It's actually the reason the ginger kombucha tonic is pink initially was because the CBD turned the formula pink, not because of the ginger. So weird, weird, weird stuff was happening, right? And so you finally get the labs to go, okay, here's our formulation. Here's our quantity. Here's our percentages. Here's how we make this formula. It's like baking. And then the CBD guys, I said guys, because they were almost all guys, they were all guys, would come and go, oh, great news. We sent you better bulk this time. It's even more pure. So instead of 80%, 82% effective or pure, now you got like 89. And I'm like, uh, now I have to redo everything. I don't want you guys to send me the better stuff. I need you to send it within spec. 
So that's where there's like a new industry that doesn't really understand the bridge and how to formulate in an existing inventory like or in industry like skincare. That was a really big learning. I kept saying, no, you got to go back. And they're like, well, we can't go back. Like we've actually changed it. This is now our product. And so the labs would be losing their marbles. Production would be losing their marbles. So yes, yeah, so you'd have to rebalance everything every single time. Where any other raw material, if it came in out of spec, they'd kick it back and be like, no, take it back and fix it, right? So that was a big part of it as well. You know, we were talking to retailers, we were talking to Ulta, for instance, and they're like, look, our customer is coming in. She's not really asking for it the way that we all collectively thought. Everybody thought this is the next big thing. Retailers, consumers, you know, brands, all this sort of stuff. She's a little confused because you can't advertise and talk about it. So no wonder she's confused, right? And then there's brands saying hemp seed oil is effectively CBD and there was all this confusion and it wasn't. And so, but you can't really explain it. And then I think they were still scared. Like people would say, is your lip gloss going to get my daughter high? You know, so you still had to kind of overcome that. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know if it's really working. And so, and am I paying too much for it? Because everyone knew it was like crazy, insane, expensive. So when we started, CBD was like, I don't know, $8,000 a kilo. It came down to like 1500 by the time we had pivoted away. This is how like crazy the inventory, the, the industry was. And so I think consumers were like, well, I don't want to pay for it if, if it's this exorbitant cost and it's not doing anything. And so there was just a big confusion. And so, you know, someone like Ulta is like, if you want to keep it in, keep it in if it's really important to you. Just understand our consumer isn't necessarily coming in and it might turn her away. You got a lot of work to do. And then there was retailers like Target, which I really wanted to be into that wouldn't touch it. And so we made the decision to take it out. It wasn't a easy decision, but it was one where you kind of did the pro con list and you're like, this just makes sense, right? And really, if we listen to our consumers and we're kind of reading through the comments, not a lot of people commented about the CBD. They commented about the formulas. They commented about the other ingredients that were really interesting. And so we felt like we could pivot. And honestly, we wouldn't have that many customers anyway, but there weren't that many people that noticed. Or And if they did, we were really transparent and just explained why. And they're like, oh, okay, I get it. So yeah, it was, it was really interesting, really interesting ride. Wow. So then you've pivoted yet again from like a cannabis brand to just a skincare <laughs> brand and then removing the CBD. Yep. And then last year, it was announced that you guys were shutting down the business. How did you get to this point? What was the deciding factor? Because like you were already like, I didn't initially want to do this in the first place whatever. But I mean, like I met with you and we were like at Erewhon. We launched an Erewhon. And literally I went to Erewhon last week. There's still Wildcat products there. Yeah. They came to us. We didn't even go to them. We had a buyer call us and we're like, huh? I didn't even know what Erewhon was at the time. And they hunted us down. And my girlfriend who now works with me on another project is like, you have no idea like how cool this is. And they, they were, uh, they were actually really awesome to work with. Totally. Yeah. You know, we took investors money and we placed POs with suppliers that we owed money to. I take that very, very seriously. Like that is the, if anything is going to make me cry, it'll make it, that will make me cry. Like it was sleepless nights about, you know, investors invest, they know what they're doing, right? They got the money to it's risk, but I still take that really, really seriously. And so even though no, did I necessarily want to do it? You get caught up and you're, you just both my husband, a co-founder and I were like, 
we got to put everything into this to try and make this work because we made promises to people and employees. You know, we had to make payroll. We funded payroll for like the last year and we didn't take pay ourselves, but we were funding everybody else's paycheck because that's what we signed up to do. Right. And so I would have shut it down probably at least a year before because it was getting really tough, really, really, really tough. We were trying to fundraise. I spent so much time fundraising that the business suffered because I wasn't able to make content, which is my favorite thing in the world. But I wasn't to do other things that probably would have been better just time spent driving the business and driving the brand. And instead I'm doing, you know, fundraising call after fundraising call after deck after deck after deck, trying to get the money to come in. And we just weren't successful. And that's a whole nother podcast (laughs) that's really dishing. But I think, you know, we still kind of scratch our heads as to why we had product that had a cult following. We had hopefully not too crazy founder, right? Who, who was at least a beauty junkie and knew, you know, like the story and and could tell the story and the products. We had distribution. We had really great distribution. We had a somewhat functioning, good website with it, with the whole experience. We had IP, we had all this sort of stuff and we just couldn't make it happen. So we had to, we had to call it quits. My husband at the same time, he, he's fine, but he's diagnosed with cancer. And so you just kind of take a step back and go, okay, I'm almost 50. Is this what I want to be doing? I have 24 hours in my day. I have to now deal with this like kind of life emergency that's come upon the family and all of these other things. And, you know, it's also opportunity costs. I'm like, I could be going and actually having an income and doing something else. And it was a very, very, very tough decision. And it was a hard pill to swallow. And, you know, we had to take the company through bankruptcy and, you know, all that sort of stuff. It sucked. It sucked. (laughs) It, it was tough, but you know, lesson learned. And I think follow your gut as much as you can follow your gut and take risks. But I knew kind of deep down, you know, it wasn't what I do. Not that I didn't work hard every single day. I was working crazy, 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 insane hours. But I think another one of the really big reasons is because I didn't want to get on social media and create content. I didn't. And I think given my transparency and given my knowledge and given my space, not that I'm the best person in the world to be, you know, to be on social, but I think that was a part, a big part of why people bought the products. If they saw me on flip or they saw me doing things, they wanted people want to buy from people. And I just didn't want to do it. And I would drag my feet and I'm like, I don't want to be on social. I don't have TikTok on my phone. I just had no desire to do it. And I think that was a big part of it. And then I didn't necessarily have the right people or team in place or agency in place to be able to kind of take that off of my plate. And it just, you know, it just kind of spun around. I mean, I just appreciate like how transparent and honest you are, because I feel like when you are, you know, on social media and you're following the journeys for a lot of like indie brands, it's just also glamorized, right? Like it makes people think that it's so easy and cool to start your own brand, really easy to get into an Ulta or an Erewhon or Sephora or whatever. And like, obviously we all want the best for everyone and want to support small brands, but like, that's just not the reality for so many. Like it is really hard. Like, I mean, you just explaining what you went through, like you were up against so much from day one, like literally. I think also, you know, our biggest asset is always our our biggest downfall, right? And I think me having the experience that I had and coming out of Urban Decay on a high was a lot of expectations, a lot, you know, that I was just going to recreate this thing. I was just going to recreate Urban Decay. I'm like, no, 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 it doesn't happen like that, right? Like, first of all, that was 10, 15 years in the making. Every overnight success is 10 years minimum. And so I think there was this 
oh, well, why isn't this taking off? And why, are, why, 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 why sort of thing. And that was, that was, that was hard too. you know, investors and, and everyone was so kind. I mean, our investors and our board and everybody was, was phenomenal, but there is definitely that pressure there to perform and do the same thing that you did before. And it's not a, it's not a rinse and repeat. It's just not. Yeah. So you talked about Wildcat's personal trajectory, you know, from creation to closing it down. What do you think that other brands are up against similarly to Wildcat? Like outside of the cannabis and CBD conversation and stuff like that? I think there's so many brands and so much product, right? And my point of view is that, you know, everybody would ask at Wildcat, what's your favorite product at Wildcat? I'm like, it's the one that we just launched because if it's not my favorite and I'm not obsessed, it should not exist in the marketplace, right? So that was like a personal thing, which is why we didn't, and we still probably launched way too much product. I think for brands coming into it now or founders coming into it now, my tip would be launch one product, maybe two, launch it out of your garage, whether it's physically out of your garage, you, the kitchen sink story, right? Keep it as tiny, as tiny, as tiny as possible. There is a different, a different path, which is the path we did where you take a bunch of money, you put a team structure. That can work. It works. It works all day long. I think though, it is hard to do. And again, the pressure and the P&L and the budget and da, 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 versus if you have this passion and you really think your product needs to be born into the market, then do that one product and tell that story and you have to get on social or you better have somebody else do it for you and talk about it from the gut and from the heart. And that I think is a better way to do it, but then you got to find the money to support it because it takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of money and it's a bummer to say that, but it really, really, really does. You guys know how much influences get paid and agencies get paid and PR agency. And you, you need all of that. You really do need all of that. It's hard and it's hard to make money in any, whether it's Sephora or Ulta or Target or Amazon or D2C. I don't care who, where it is. It's tough to make money and they all have different, obviously, P&Ls in the way that the dollars, but to get a customer on your D2C business, I mean, customer acquisition costs like $250, right? If you think about that, you have to spend $250 to every customer to get to your website and buy a product. And then you got to pay to keep them, right? And how are you going to keep them engaged? And then is it is it new product that keeps coming and getting engaged? Is it replenishment? It's, a, it's tough. It's really tough. It is a commerce space. I mean, we all like to think it's this like sexy beauty thing, which it is, but it's a, it's a packaged good, right? And it's a, it's a replenishment package good that you've got to compete with everybody else in the market. Who do you think is doing well? Like, is there a brand that you look at and you're like, okay, they're really knocking it out of the park for me? Yeah, especially like a small one. Well, knocking it out of the park in terms of what you see on the, at the front versus what's happening in the back end, two completely different stories, right? And you're like a wildcat. People are like, you guys are crushing it. Uh, yeah, totally, totally crushing it, right? I really like Fiona's story from Euphoria. I think her story, how she's doing, I don't know. I don't, again, I literally don't follow anyone on social. I think her story of how that product came to be is really cool. I talked to her a couple of times. That girl is a hustler like I have never seen. I mean, she is out to do it. And I appreciate that this was 
her passion, I mean, her story, she moved back from Hong Kong to the US just so she could be on TikTok. I'm like, can I move to Hong Kong so I don't have to be on TikTok? <laughs> right? Like, I just, <laughs> like, uh, no, seriously. I think how she did that is really, really interesting. The product is really good. I'm trying to think who else. I know Refi is not super small, but I love their aesthetic. I love how they, I love their energy. It's like super my energy. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like it's all about big brands now. It's all about big brands. I think it is so interesting to watch these brands that have been around forever and they just got this social media momentum. Obviously, it takes a massive amount of money and strategy and all that sort of stuff. It's not just doesn't just happen. Just start to like turn it around. I think it's fascinating. I think I'm jealous that we weren't able to do that. But you look at these established brands and you're like, wow, you guys, you figured it out. Like major props to you. You know, totally. It's cool. it's cool. I think Elf is unbelievable on what they've built. I was going to ask what you thought. Unbelievable. Yeah, they're killing it. Clearly. Same. Bow down. <laughs> I mean, I use it. My daughter uses it. I mean, what they have done and zero apologies for where they sit in the marketplace. I think it's pretty amazing. Agreed. They're killing it. Yeah. You're working now, though, as a consultant. You're still doing what you love. You're doing the the part of the job that you love. Yeah. 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 Part of the job that I love. And then I can offer, you know, here's what we didn't do. Right. Here's what I would do. Here's where I would spend the money. Again, I always, I always say that with speed of change, right. Things happen so fast, but it's nice to be able to say, okay, I built a website. Here's what I would do and what I wouldn't do. Don't waste the time and energy on this. Get it up, test, learn, see what's happening. See what the click-through rate is. Where's the customer falling off? Like, don't worry about making it perfect the day one. Cause it's gonna, you know, it's gonna change, but that's so kind of fun to be able to do that. But I'll, but then say, that's my piece of advice. You can do what you want. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Amy, we do this thing with our favorite experts. We ask them five things we should know if we want to launch a brand. What would you say those are? I think, first of all, you will mess up. No matter what, no matter how much you plan, you will mess up. Take calculated risks, but you got to take risks and you will mess up. The second to that is, embrace the mistakes, one, from a learning standpoint, but two, in terms of actual product and formulation or a shade, a lot of times the mistakes are better, right? And so I partner really, really, really closely with suppliers and with vendors and the partners, which is another, you know, kind of tip, I guess, tip number three is find your core group of people that you can trust. And for me, that was always the suppliers, right? The formulators, the chemists, let them do their magic and then see what comes out of it. Because a lot of times the mistakes is better than what you had it envisioned in the first place. And there is magic there. Really, 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 truly magic. Sometimes you have to wait for the market to catch up, right? We talked about that before. Some of the products, that's a hard thing to do sometimes. Like the market's just not right. And finding that timing can be tough, but you'll find it. Speed of change, which is tied to that is right, is it is so quick now, but also everything comes back. It all comes back. I mean, I see what my daughter is, is looking at in her drawers and I'm like, oh my God, really? Like this is now a thing. It all comes back. And I think the most important thing, which I talked about a lot is you have to love it. I think you have to love what you're doing. I think you have to love the product that you're launching and it may be that you don't love it for you, but you love it for like why it needs to be in the world and have a perspective on that and really push that. And I think those are the things that like, I would say, whether it's a product, whether it's a package, whether it's a brand, 
those are kind of my my five tips all right that's it thank you everyone for listening we will be back on tuesday with the week's most buzzy beauty news make sure you subscribe to us on apple podcasts and follow us on spotify so you don't miss any breaking beauty news or product reviews and if you want to support us be sure to follow us at Los Angeles Pod on all platforms and join our Facebook group. Plus, find every product we recommend on our website, glossangelespod.com, as well as links to the stories and news we report each week. You can follow us, your hosts. I'm Sarah Tan, that's S-A-R-A-T-A-N, on all social platforms. And I'm Kirby Johnson, K-I-R-B-I-E, on all social platforms. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 